Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I am here with uh, our remarkable producer, Nathan Yoder, and um, my friend, Aaron Mercer, who's also a co-host. Good to be on here with you, Peter. Yeah. Well, this is not a, a topic for the faint of heart, but I also feel like this is a very important topic. Um, my friend Austin Bush, who's been on our show before, recommended that we interview from Indiana Wesleyan University, uh, Dr. Rusty Hawkins. He's going to be answering the question, why does history matter to racial reconciliation? And uh, I just can't wait to uh, have this conversation. And it pairs nicely with an episode that we have with George Yancey, who's going to be uh, looking at a similar topic. So I don't know, Aaron, before we throw it to Rusty, any thoughts or? Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to the conversation too. Uh, Rusty, thank you so much for being on here with us. And um, yeah, no, obviously uh, racial reconciliation has been a topic of great importance for a long time, um, but particularly over the last several years, it's one that uh, I think a lot of people really want to dig in and uh, learn more about. Uh, and, you know, how do we how do we make progress on this on this matter? I think it's something that's important to a lot of people. So, in any case, um, yeah, I'm I'm excited that uh, Rusty Hawkins is on with us. I love that he's at Indian Wesleyan. By the way, I, you know, my wife went to Indian Wesleyan, so I'm I'm already happy to be talking to Rusty by itself. Um, and um, yeah, I would I'm looking forward to the conversation we have to maybe you know maybe to get us started. Um, Rusty, would you mind giving give us you know, give the listeners and me too? I know you've talked to Peter a bit, but uh, just a little bit of background on you and how you got to your post there at Indiana Wesleyan. Sure. Um, yeah. Hey, and thanks for the invitation. It's good to be with you guys, uh, and I'm looking forward to to the, to the uh, conversation this afternoon. Um, so um, we were just talking a little bit before we turned the cameras on, but uh, I grew up in in Kansas City, and um, I had the uh, the great privilege of, of growing up in, in a Christian home uh, in Kansas City and kind of had a, a fairly standard, um, oh, standard from my perspective of the people I knew uh, in terms of upbringing, um, the middle child, two sisters, um, two-parent household uh, in church on Sunday mornings, uh, Wednesday nights, and Sunday nights too, three times a week, um, really any time the church was open, we were there. Um and so it kind of had a, a pretty traditional um, 1980s upbringing um, in the evangelical sense of the, of the term. Um, so if you grew up evangelical in the 80s, um, you grew up like singing along with Salty or Kobe the Computer or, <laughs> um, or those types of things. I mean, I'm your person. I was, I was that kid. I was that guy. Um, I'm with um, you, by the way. Peter's too young the- for that, but I, I'm with you. Hey, okay. <laughs> hey, hey, hold on. If you want to be great, you got to serve. Anyway, that's a whole nother all right. thing. I, I'm there. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you there. I just I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. Um, I, I, from the earliest age, I, I had a fascination with history. And so uh, um, I, I was the kind of a, a nerdy kid who just loved the American presidents and loved to read books about the presidents and uh, when library came and it's time for us to go to to check out books, I always went to the nonfiction section and nonfiction section and, and checked out presidential biographies, um, even like in, in grade school. So uh, when I got to college and, and discovered that I could um, pick my own major and study what I wanted to study, it was a no brainer for me that I wanted to be a, a history major. So I ended up at um, 
at Wheaton College in Illinois and um, started um, getting more serious about studying history. And, uh, and around that time was also um, starting to come to understand um, racial issues in the United States in ways that were kind of confusing to me. Um, but at any rate, uh, eventually got to the point that I decided that I wanted eventually to get back to a, an arrangement like the one I had at Wheaton and, uh, and teach evangelical students like myself um, parts of history that I wasn't taught uh, and I didn't learn about until much later in life. Um, so through different twists and turns uh, in grad schools and, and different preparations, I felt like that God was uh, taking my wife and I through uh, we eventually found our way here to Marion, Indiana, where I've been a, uh, a professor of history for the last 14 years uh, and now currently the, the dean of the Honors College here at Indiana Wesleyan. So, Rusty, I, I really appreciate you being on. I want to back up a little bit more. Help our listeners um, understand kind of your experience um, with race and religion. You shared a little bit more about Christianity, but... You know, you kind of landed here and just, I forgot to say this in the front end, you know, we'll be talking about your book, The Bible Told Them So, you know, just, um, it's not necessarily a glowing review of some of our Christian leaders in the past, so we'll get more into that, mm. but tell me a little bit about your story about um, engaging people of different races and why you have a unique perspective to this topic. Yeah, yeah, thanks for, thanks for backing me up a little bit, and um <laughs> I think um, if I can say just a little bit more about my faith journey before I get to the the racial part of it, that might that might help explain some things as well. But um, um, I grew up as as part of a in the holiness tradition. I grew up free Methodist, and so um, grew up very much aware of this idea that um, that I was a sinner in need of repentance, and uh, kind of lost track of the amount of times I rededicated my my uh, my life to to God and number of times at camp, I would go forward again to recommit myself because you can never be too sure. Um, and as a result of kind of like this, uh, this type of, of, of Christianity, um, it was, it was a, a faith that was very much, um, understood. And this, I'm not blaming anyone about this, just as a young, as a young boy, uh, I, I understood my faith to be a list of do's and don'ts, things to avoid, uh, making sure that you have fire insurance so that you don't go to hell when you die. And that's what the Christian life was about, making sure that you were following certain rules so that, that when the judgment day came, uh, whenever that may be, that you were, you were good and you were in, in God's book. And so, um, it wasn't until I was in college that um, I started reading um, some folks like C.S. Lewis and Dallas Willard and got exposed to this idea of um, that I was really participating in, in more of a gospel of sin management rather than the, the fullness of what uh, what the Christian life is all about. And um, it was while I was in college then that, that my faith uh, began to grow and understand that what Christ is calling us to is this life of flourishing and abundance that is available in the here and now it is not just uh, about living in eternity and in, in, in the clouds with, with Jesus when you die, but, but that the kingdom is already here and not yet. And that part of our responsibility as Christians uh, as we are living into the fullness of the human experience and, and flourishing is available to us now. And so it's incumbent upon us to um, advance the kingdom um, 
by how we live now and that it's not just about avoiding sin, but it's actually active, proactively uh, working to spread love and to rightly order our loves and to live into this flourishing that's available to us in the here and now. And this was just a, just a revolutionary change for me um, that I'm so thankful um, uh, to this day to, to folks like uh, Willard um, who kind of helped help push me down that, that path and that understanding. Um, but it really had implications then on, on the things I studied as well. And so if I can like go back a little bit and talk about um, my upbringing in Kansas City, I, I had a, a fairly unusual upbringing um, in that in the 1970s, um, Kansas City, the metropolitan area was undergoing some pretty significant demographic shifts. And there is a particular part of the city called Wyandotte County um, that a lot of white families in the 1970s were moving out of. They're moving down into the, the southern suburbs of Kansas City um, across a, a river uh, into an area called Johnson County, Kansas. Uh, and so there's some pretty significant uh, demographic shifts that were happening in Kansas City in the 70s when I was born. And my family, um, my, my two parents, actually reversed that demographic shift and they actually moved into Kansas City, Kansas, uh, a part of the city that a lot of white families were leaving in the 70s. And they didn't do this out of any ideological um, purpose or, or political commitments. Uh, they, they did so simply because they wanted to be closer to their church. Um, and the church that they were attending at the time was in KCK um, and they wanted to be closer to their church and they didn't want to commute in from, from the southern suburbs. And so they moved into um, Kansas City, Kansas. And as a result of them wanting to be closer to their church, I and my sisters had this experience of growing up in a racially diverse neighborhood. Um, we all three attended the public schools in Kansas City, Kansas. And so um, from our earliest days, we were um, in racially diverse schools being taught by uh, teachers of color. Um, second grade, starting in second grade, I had a, had a black second grade teacher and, and having black teachers was um, uh, not at all unusual um, in my experience going to, to public schools in Kansas City. Um, I grew up playing on, on sports teams that were racially diverse. Um, and so I would have like this consistent experience on a daily basis of being exposed to racial diversity uh, and having that be celebrated as a strength and something that we um, want to do. But then would have these experiences on Sunday morning and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights that were anything but racially diverse and that were, in fact, were all white. Uh, and so when you're a child raised in that environment, you don't think a lot about it. You just kind of accept that's the way that things are. But it was kind of peculiar to me that we would go to a church in the middle of a neighborhood that was racially diverse, but everyone inside of our church was, was white. Um, and that dovetailed then in uh, the broader American context in the mid-1990s when I'm really coming of age. Um, there is a pretty significant um, uh, event that happened in American history known as the O.J. Simpson trial. Um, and um, Peter, I don't know if you're age, and Aaron, you, you said you knew Salty the Singing Songbook, so perhaps you remember the O.J. Simpson uh, period, but... This was a period then in, in American history where, where race was right on the forefront of everyone's like uh, attention. Um, it's not unlike what it is today. Um, but I remember um, very clearly being in Aldersgate Free Methodist Church and standing in the sanctuary and hearing a, um, a mother of a, of a friend of mine um, make a racist joke about O.J. Simpson there in, in Aldersgate. And there was this moment 
of, of kind of disconnect for me where I thought, well, that's really weird to have racism in the church or have someone espouse a, a racist joke in the church. That doesn't all seem to fly in the face of the broader celebration of racial diversity um, that, that I've experienced outside the church. So that was kind of some of the baggage that I took with me when I got to Wheaton. And I, I went off to Wheaton College and um, discovered there um, that, that my experience growing up evangelical in a racially diverse situation wasn't typical. And that a lot of the friends I was there making at Wheaton who also grew up evangelical were growing up evangelical, but racially homogenous in ways that um, they didn't have that same experience. And so we were often talking past each other whenever it, discussions of race came up, which they did quite often at that, at that time, um, because again, it was kind of on everyone's mind. Um, at any rate, I, I, uh, I'm filing all this away and trying to make sense of it. And, and it was around that time that, that, um, I was trying to figure out what, what God had for me next. And I really felt like God was, was calling me to become a, a teacher, uh, to become a professor. And so, um, I went off to, to graduate school and I thought I wanted to be a historian of the American West. So I went out to Montana state university and, um, and around this time was just starting to get into uh, graduate studies. And I was newly married. My wife and I, we met at Wheaton. And so we, we got married. And um, on my honeymoon, my, um, my parents actually bought for me a book called Divided by Faith. And it was by this sociologist named Michael Emerson, um, who I know you're going to talk to George Yancey or you had George Yancey on. But Michael and George are, are sociologists who have worked together in the past and have written books together. But Michael wrote this book. And back in 2000 called divided by faith. And I actually took this book with me on my honeymoon and, uh, and read it on my honeymoon. So it had this profound impact in my life, but I sat there and read this book and, and it was just crazy to me that, that this sociologist, Michael Emerson had somehow entered into my shoes and knew exactly the experiences that I had had growing up and the conversations I had had. And he seemed to explain so clearly in this book, um, all these answered all these questions I had about why was it that when it came to the issue of, of race, that white Christians seem to have such a different perspective um, on the problem of race and the issue of race than, than black Christians. Um, and he kind of laid it out there in this book and, and, and diagnosed some of it. But for me, right at the beginning of my graduate journey, um, graduate school journey, it was like, that's what I want to study. I want to study how it is that, that white Christians got this way. Um, and so I kind of um, scuttled the idea of studying the American West and, and finished a master's degree out at Montana State. And I said, I want to go somewhere and study the history of, um, of race and religion in the United States and why it is that white Christians um, today have such a hard time talking about and engaging this issue of race. And I decided if I was going to do that, I needed to study a period of American history when Christians would have definitely had to have been on the record, would have had to make statements about what they believed about race. So I ended up ultimately um, trying to decide between different schools and um, studying the history of the civil rights movement. And I went to one school in Houston, Texas. And, um, you know, it's, it's weird that, that, that they were trying to roll out the red carpet and say, here's why you should come to, to Rice University and, and, and study history here. And one of the pitches they made to me there was that they had a sociologist on their campus uh, who studied a lot of the things sociologically that I was interested in studying history, historically. Uh, 
And they said, his name is Michael Emerson. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he wrote a book called Divided by Faith. And I said, oh, my goodness, yes, that book was why I wanted to study what this was. I hadn't paid attention about where the author was working, but I really felt like that was God's um, kind of very forceful hand saying, that's, that's where you should go. And so I ended up going to Rice, and I got to study the history of the South and the history of the Civil Rights Movement. But I also had this really incredible opportunity then to um, sit at the feet of Michael Emerson and um, Michael is just an incredible mentor, a man of God, um, strong believer who um, had this incredible experience himself about God leading him to study um, racial division in the church and um, has really committed his life um, and, and his family's life to, uh, to trying to live out reconciliation. Uh, Michael is, is white. Um, and one of the things that he impressed upon me and, and my wife was that um, this is a topic that you can study academically, but that um, really God is, is calling Christians to actually live out this reconciliation. Um, and so while we were in Houston, uh, my wife and I ended up um, attending an intentionally multiracial church uh, for the effort of, of um, saying if we can't live into some of this reconciliation that we felt like God was calling us to, uh, to advance the kingdom. And so really this, uh, this, this historical research that I have been um, working in and, and trying to understand has, has largely been trying to understand my own story and my own people and my own history. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, uh, that's a really long answer to a simple question, but, but that's, that's how I came to this topic. No, that's really helpful. Um, was, so as you've done a lot, of, a lot of research on race relations and um, you know, this whole topic is why does history matter to racial reconciliation? That's the question for the podcast. But, you know, I, I'm curious, is there a, as you were doing your research, once you got into it, um, is there a point, is there an inflection point? Is there a time, uh, you know, in the history that you studied where obviously painting a broad brush with Christians is a broad brush. I mean, people did different things obviously but in general yeah. was there a was there a point where um, most evangelical christians maybe most christians in general but most evangelical christians could have gone one way or another and you know what was that inflection point or maybe there's a series of things that just kind of shaped like wh- what shaped where we are today yeah <laughs> that's a that's a great question and um you know, historians have this thing about about uh, history is contingent, which means like there isn't any, there is no such thing as inevitability within history that that we get where we are as a result of choices that get made, and choices could be made a different way that could have taken us a different path. So, are there inflection points? Well, absolutely. I mean, so so where you want to start uh, depends on like how far back you want to go. Um, and you know, you could take this all the way back to the 16th century, uh, when we talk about the, uh, the Christian expansion into, into North Africa, um, or, or, um, sorry, the, the Islamic expansion in North Africa, and then like the crusades and the resulted from that and what happened then with, with, uh, slave trade networks that were established as a result of the crusades. But, um, you could do a whole series of that in terms of like, what if Christians would have decided again, using broad brushes, what if Christians would have decided to do that instead of that or that instead of that? Um, I think, 
for my purposes, where I, I feel most comfortable talking about, um, was there moments in which Christians could have chosen differently, mm-hmm. um, white Christians could have chosen differently. Um, I feel most comfortable thinking about it in terms of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe we can even back it up to after the American Civil War. So, I mean, after the American Civil War, there was this moment of um, of radical reconstruction where some of the injustices that had been perpetuated very early on um, with the establishment of, of slavery within this nation were finally laid bare and some pretty significant changes to the framing document of the country. The constitution was amended uh, three times in the, in the series of, of over, of over just three short years in significant ways to, to 13th amendment abolish slavery, 14th amendment provide equal justice under the law and the 15th amendment provide voting rights. you know, the, the, the lever of power in a democracy to, to black male citizens of this country. So um, there was a moment there, I think in, in, the aftermath of the civil war that had the country chosen um, to embrace those changes and live into this new reality. Uh, perhaps the story that I'm telling in this book in the civil rights period, uh, wouldn't have unfolded the way it did. Mm-hmm. But instead what happened is we had this period of, of um, Christians in the South who said we need to redeem our, our, our land. We need to redeem our region. They call themselves the redeemers um, from these radical changes that have happened and reimpose our way of life, our former way of life. And as a result of that, there is a regime of, of lynching and terrorism and Jim Crow segregation that was put in place that then Christians a hundred years later were again at this crisis point in terms of how are you going to respond to this? Uh, how are we going to change it? So I think history is riddled through with these different inflection points when they could have gone one way or the other. Reconstruction stands out in my mind as a particularly mm. prevalent one that that could have painted so, a completely different picture. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate like what you're doing is really hard work, and I I think that that's really important to say. And um, I actually kind of want to come back to some of the modern instances. Um, we're gonna have a lot of fun in this podcast. I, I do want to kind of back up though. Um, you're teaching a, a bunch of Gen Zers right now. I think that that's the correct yeah. generation. Um, I, I think you've taught some millennials. So I am a millennial. I'm not that. Um, I think we're closer in age than we think. I do know who Salty is. So, um, <laughs> but I guess in your time of teaching, have you seen your students? engage the history and topic of your class differently. Um, you know, I, I know that some of this is geographical. Um, and again, I have a few follow-up, but I guess I'd be curious cause you're, I feel like there's a generational differences to way people kind of engage this and you're kind of on the front end. So maybe for some of our listeners who might be in the older generation, how are you engaging this in students and what are kind of their reactions and yeah. Yeah, great question. Great question, Peter. I think the um, the way that I've seen it change over the last 14 years, um, I think 14 years ago, one of the things that I had to do with students is to convince them that um, race was worth their while studying. And I should point out that I'm, I'm teaching at a primarily white institution. So the vast majority of my students are, are white. Um, so 14 years ago, when I got to campus, I think there was a little bit of resistance to the idea that um, race was an issue that we should be talking about. Um, 
that we would all be better off if we just didn't talk about race, that if we embraced notions of colorblindness and the idea that we were just equal at the foot of the cross, then um, problems of race would would go away, that we were perpetuating the problem by talking about it. Um, that, that, I think, was the predominant mindset uh, 14 years ago. I think probably about seven years ago, that shifted pretty dramatically. And, and it's, it's almost as if, um, you know, beginning with, with um, Trayvon Martin, and then if you can remember, I mean, we just have almost on a yearly basis have another incident of, of, uh, of, of some kind of a racial crime or outburst that happens always in the summer, always uh, seemingly right before classes start at a college campus again. And so I think the kind of the almost continual rhythm of those types of um, um, if you go back from from George or Trayvon Martin to Michael Brown to Breonna Taylor to George Floyd, I mean, almost on a consistent basis, uh, on a yearly basis, um, has created within I think students today um, the idea that all right, so there's a problem and how are we going to deal with it? And so I think there is a, a more of a um, very much a, an understanding that. Um, that race continues to be a, a, um, a salient issue in our society and one that should be addressed. Um, but I also think that the last year has begun to maybe swing back the other way. Um, and I don't, I'm not picking up on this so much from our students, but I'm hearing more in the outside constituencies that then again, the problem is talking about it. And so we need to take steps not to talk about it. Hmm. And so I do kind of feel like we're, um, maybe feeling the first swings of a pendulum back the other way where the issue again has become the fact that we're even talking about this history in the first place. You know, um, just to kind of go with that, uh, I was sitting in a gathering with Esau McCauley who actually teaches at Wheaton and he, he made this yeah. fascinating comment. He said, you know, I wonder what would have happened if we were having the conversations about race when George W. Bush was president. And I just, I had never kind of thought about that because you're right. Like we've already mentioned too, you know, there was OJ Simpson, Trayvon Martin, you know, we can go all the way up to George Floyd and there's these instances right. that kind of bring it up, but it just seems like this is an issue to kind of have a conversation when there doesn't seem, and I, I want to be careful as I say this, there's, there's seemingly, this is a, this is not a conversation that goes away. But it just seems that if it, to some individuals, if it's out of sight, out of mind. So I guess right. as we kind of make this shift as kind of what you said, what what are steps that people can take so it's not reactive? And for those of us listening, let's just, I think Rusty has said this, um, we're, we're three white guys talking about it. <laughs> like, let's just kind of be honest, you know, if you can yeah, see us on video, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, as we kind of shift, like the volume's always up on this, it might get turned louder, but what does it look like to healthily kind of engage some of the messiness of this topic? Yeah, that, that's a that's a terrific question and a really important one too, um, because I think you're right that for, for some of us, um, especially those of us who are white, we, we do find um, the issue of race in America to be one that like suddenly pops up on our radar. And so the, one of the things as I was, uh, as I usually tell my story, um, when I think about 
oh man, yeah, OJ Simpson, like was what, you know, that's what put race on my radar. Um, well, if you look in the context of, of, of American history, you know, there are plenty of things that were happening before OJ Simpson. There are plenty of things that happened between OJ Simpson and Trayvon Martin um, uh, for, for Americans of color who don't have that, that, uh, that same uh, perspective to like, Oh, just turn off that noise or, or, or turn it down. Um, and so one of the things I think is really important to get to your, to your question then Peter is to, is to say that what we really need to do is, is to engage history better. Mm-hmm. And we need to, as, as Christians read history, it's really important as, as, as Christians, as followers of Christ to, to read history. I, I am struck by the number of times um, in, in scripture where God calls us to remember uh, and I think there's something significant about that, that we are we are people who are called to remember. Um, and and it's not just remember for the sake of exalting God and, and what he has done for us in the past, although indeed that's part of, of what it, with the purpose of remembering. But I think even more so um, when when I read the Psalms, I'm so struck um, by the by the amount of times that you'll come across a psalm in which um they're writing about the ways in which Israel screwed up um, and, and the ways in which Israel did not follow God and the ways in which Israel uh, built idols and the ways in which Israel forgot God. And I'm always struck by that as, I mean, these Psalms are, are meant as, as um, acts of worship to God. And part of that worship is, hey, we're going to remember the fact that we screwed up in the past and we weren't always honoring to you. And I think some of our tendencies as, as Christians is to say, um, let's just forget about the past and, and you know, uh, no turning back, no turning back, um, and we're, we're moving forward. But I, I think that comes at a cost, um, and especially when it comes to this idea of reconciliation, that if we aren't aware of our history and if we don't engage our history well, um, then even the idea of what it is we're reconciling to can become lost. Hmm. So I want to I want to turn back to the history, um, you know, because I I I, th- I think that you're right. It's important to, you know, we learned a lot of lessons from history. I I, I love history also, and um, and I and I you know I do think you know Peter there were there have been people talking about these matters right along, um, and uh, we're talking but, to somebody who obviously <laughs> I, yeah no, but you're right. I think the volume goes up and down depending on what's going on. Um, and so that kind of leads to my question is, you know, what are some conversations along the way that let's say, I'm trying to think of a good moment to, to focus on, but where, where a, uh, white evangelical leader should have been listening more carefully to a black evangelical leader, or maybe someone of a different race too. But I mean, immediately, of course, I think about were there were there religious leaders uh christian leaders in particular who should have been having a better conversation with with dr martin luther king but i know that that wasn't maybe a a dial down time frame that was a that era was uh the the volume was way up on on racial matters um so maybe there's a time as you in your studies that have come along where it was a quieter moment where people should have been talking more you know where did where did people miss it where where could have had been done better and maybe it is in the martin luther king section but like area of time but i'm just curious what have you found in your research that um where people could have been listening better yeah i mean i think always i think always is is the opportunity there's always a good time to listen and i don't know that um 
I, I, I say this as, as a, um, as an evangelical of myself. Um, but, but I, I don't think that, um, we are always um, the best listeners in large part because we're always so driven to certainty and we need certainty, we crave certainty. And so to listen has to be some admission that we may not know something. Um, and so I think that's always kind of inherent within within this, this branch of the family tree of, of the church is this tendency not to listen well. Uh, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of humility to, uh, to admit that you don't know and, and need to learn from someone else. Um, and especially ways in which we even measure success in our movement where um, where we tend to measure uh, success in terms of numbers. And so if you if you have um, numbers, if you have people who attend your church, if you have people who are, who are following uh, what you're doing and are attracted to that, um, the idea then that if you have a, a quote unquote successful church that you would go to someone else and ask them um what you should be doing. I mean, just, it's, it's, it, it flies in the face of so much about American Christianity. Um, if, if I can talk a little bit more about like what I found in, in my book specifically, um, yeah. I think that one of the, one of the problems in the civil rights movement is, is that a lot of white Christians who chose during that period, um, not just not to ask, but also take an active stance against the civil rights movement, um, was that they were also working with really bad um, biblical interpretations, that they were working with a really bad hermeneutical tool that, that they understood segregation, their way of life, uh, to be something that God had ordained. Uh, and so as they looked around their society and they saw a Southern society that ha- had Jim Crow in place and that from their imagination, it had always been that way, for someone to come along and say, no, we need to tear this thing down and build something new um, to these white Christians. They're saying what you're doing is, is trying to undo what God has done. And I think that's, there's something analogous to um, maybe even our contemporary moment. If we think about that, that if you are in a place in society where you feel pretty good about the way things are and how things are going, um, the idea that you need to go listen to someone else who's telling you you need to do something different, it, it, it's really hard to do. Um, it's, it's, so I think it's asking a lot of, of, uh, of, of Christians to um, undertake something like that, um, which isn't to, to, to excuse not doing it, but I think it helps explain why perhaps that isn't just more of a, hey, why didn't you just listen? Uh, why didn't you... Why didn't you just sit down with, with Dr. King and hear what he had to say? Well, I mean, from the perspective of the folks at the time, because he wasn't a communist who was trying to destroy America and 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 the church from within. So, I mean, uh, historical hindsight now that celebrates King certainly wasn't there uh, in, in 1963 or 62 or 55 even, but. Can you, well, actually, I'd love to, can you elaborate on that? Like, I know you, um, you have a lot of materials in in your book, and I'm sure in your classes, I'm sure they're fascinating. Um, uh, maybe I can like audit one or something someday if I ever visit Indian West. I can sit down at a class. But what like uh, can you can you expound upon that? Because I mean that when I hear that, of course, you know I'm coming from a, a different generation and an even a um, you know different region of the country or whatever. But it sounds foreign to me. Why why would people even why would people even think that about 
Dr. King, for example, like what what was feeding into that that then somehow fed into the I'm trying to get to where what how, what has fed into the situation we have now. But like, I want to understand better yeah. where we came from. Yeah, great question. Sure, for sure. So here's the here's the big uh, argument of my book is um, so um, I start I start the story in, in 1954. In 1954, there's this very famous Supreme Court case that ends uh, school segregation. So the Brown versus Board of Education decision 1954 ends school segregation. Um, almost immediately, then there is a there's um, an organization formed in the South, this, this effort, um, to block that, to make sure it doesn't go into effect. And so what you have is this organization of, um, organizing of white Southerners who are determined not to see segregation come into their society, sorry, integration come into their society. Um, and so they start marshalling all the arguments they can to maintain the segregation. And one of the chief arguments that they are able to marshal is the fact that as they read scripture, starting in Genesis and going through Revelation, they can see that God was the one that designed segregation. It was God who set the, the, the races apart of the Tower of Babel. It was God that, um, that then even in Revelation 7-9, when there's uh, there's uh, people from different tribes and tongues at the, at the throne in heaven, um, that's evidence that God still wants to have segregation here on earth that will then be reflected in heaven. And so everything from Genesis to Revelation, they find, they go through, and they can demonstrate um, ways in which God is a segregationist. Um, this then, these interpretations get published in tracts, they get preached in sermons, uh, they get broadcast on radio messages, uh, they get printed in books. And so you have this the generation of people then who are being taught that God is a segregationist, that God desires segregation. And meanwhile, you have people coming along who supposedly are claiming to be Christians, um, folks like Dr. King, who are also saying that, no, God doesn't want segregation. God wants us to be equal. But the only other people in the world at this time, in the 1950s, who are talking about equality in this sense are communists over in the Soviet Union. Hmm. And so it becomes very easy then to say that King isn't truly a Christian. What King is is a communist. And he's just a front of the Communist Party who's trying to bring down the United States on the inside. And so, again, it seems laughable and almost silly from our perspective in 2023. But back in 1953 and 54 and 55, these Christians ardently believed that. And time and again, when they had opportunities to embrace integration and to say, we want to open up our denominations. We no longer want to be segregated denominations. Time and time again, these white Christians voted no to maintain segregation in their churches and in their um, their institutions of higher learning as well. So Baptist schools in the South and um, Methodist schools in the South voted to maintain segregated schools um, in, in, in the South. I should say too, that oftentimes we like to like excuse the South as like make them our, our whipping boy in terms of like, yeah, this is a Southern problem. And, and, uh, those are just backwooded Southerners. But one of the most interesting things I have found since being in Indiana, uh, is that my institution, um, Indiana Wesleyan in, in the mid 1960s, uh, for the first time adopted a rule that said that you could not be a student at Indiana Wesleyan 
if you married a student of a different race. And if you look, look back at the, at, the, uh, at the history that I talk about in the book in terms of like the, the, the theology, the segregationist theology that these Christians were imbibing in the 1950s and 60s, the idea that even an evangelical school at a place in Indiana would also pass a, a, a student uh, conduct rule that said you can't marry someone of a different race makes a whole lot more sense and also calls into question just how unique the South was when it came to this, to this issue of racial segregation. The point that I make in the book is that despite the fact that, that Christians really tried to resist um, and did all they could to maintain segregation in their churches and in their institutions of, of, of higher learning, um, eventually American society changes. And with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64 and the Voting Rights Act in 65 and another Civil Rights Act in 1968, it becomes clear that Americans in the broader sense begin to start changing their perspective. And where someone in 1955 could very clearly say, God is a segregationist and God doesn't want us to mix. By the time 1970 rolls around, these same people who are making those same comments like 15 years earlier are suddenly, they're still making them, but they're making them privately in letters that they're exchanging to each other. Um, and then publicly what they're saying instead is, you know what the problem in America is, is that we focus too much on race. And the problem is that we have, um, we're making race an issue where it shouldn't be an issue. And what we should be doing is being colorblind and we should just ignore race and it will go away. And, and what they're actually doing in 1970 is trying to prevent the integration of their denominations and the integration of their schools by taking race off the top, off the table. In other words, they're using colorblindness in the 1970s as an intentional defensive tool to prevent integration of their institutions. But what they have done is then fashion this tool of colorblindness that then they pass on to their children and their children. And so when I come along in 1980 and I'm taught, you know what, when it comes to race, Christians just shouldn't talk about it. What I'm actually using is a tool that some segregationist Christians before me fashioned to prevent integration from happening. And now I'm un unknowingly wielding saying, yeah, we should just be colorblind. We should just be colorblind. And what I'm doing is unintentionally perpetuating uh, the very segregation that, that, I think the gospel calls us to undo the, the I'm, I'm perpetuating that dividing wall of hostility that the gospel calls us to, to break down. So, um, we just all kind of went to class. Uh, and that's why we love having Aaron. <laughs> um, we should probably pay, uh, you know, a little bit of your salary after that. Cause we, we took a class with you. Let me kind of frame this question this way, cause I could come out and say this, but I think there needs to be some context. So, um, you know, I I was on PBS and I watched this documentary on G.T. Bynum, who is the mayor of Tulsa. And, you know, this whole documentary, he's a Republican mayor. Um, and this it's on PBS, which leans liberal. I think there's kind of a thought out there. And, you know, he's telling the story about the Tulsa massacre that um, happened about 100 years ago. And throughout the whole thing he is bringing in leaders and he's just acknowledging it happened like and again i don't have all the details you might have more of the details as a historian and it just kind of seems that the lesson to to kind of christians and maybe our listeners who are listening to this there's definitely going to be a lot of reactions 
like with with GT Bynum, he's the mayor of Tulsa. He's acknowledging this happened. He's working to make this right. It sounds so simple. I think some of our listeners might be asking, why can't we just acknowledge some of these, you know, really just messy, um, sinful situations um, to do that? So I, I guess I I use GT Bynum as kind of this example that, hey, let's just acknowledge it. Let's work towards making things better. It seems pretty simple, but you've probably had conversations um, in and outside the classroom that you kind of know why it's complex. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I often talk about students, talk about this with students in, in terms of, um, you, you have to talk about and acknowledge the history because it's such a, a necessary part of a, of, of the way I frame it is a, a, a three-legged stool. And so, um, I talk about this in terms of, um, first of all, if we're, if we're Christians, the reason we should care about any of this and, and come to any of this is it has to be um, a theological reason. I mean, there has to be uh, some compelling reason why I should care about um, uh, about reconciliation. And I think one of the things that 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 um, that I, I found in, in my um, well, I don't even speak for today. I, I just think that we do a really bad job um, talking about reconciliation. I mean, I, I even hear. Uh, Christians at this point talking about how the even the term reconciliation should we should it has lost meaning so maybe we need to move on to something else and I I would I it just flabbergasts me and I don't mean to set up a straw man or anything but I'm just like reconciliation is such the 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 heart of of what the of what the Christian message is and I think that we can understand that and wrap our minds around that when it comes to this notion of reconciled sinners to God. Um, but the idea of, of reconciliation that goes horizontally and the idea that we are also called then to be reconciled to our neighbors um, is, is, I think, where we fall so short. And, and even when we do think about that in terms of reconciliation, um, we think about it in terms of like, oh, just like coexistence or just friendliness or camaraderie. Uh, instead of understanding that, man, if you study the, the, the parts of, of Scripture, like where Paul is talking about, um, what we have as Christians is the gospel of reconciliation, and we are called to be ambassadors of this gospel. And in that very section, he says that if anyone is 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 in Christ, if you are reconciled to Christ, you are a new creation, and the old is gone and the new has come. And if we have that understanding that reconciliation then demands of us a transformation, that we aren't truly reconciled with other people if we are just the same person we've always been alongside someone else. Uh, and so if we have a if we have a an understanding of reconciliation that 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 we are called to pursue um, and that is the reason why we were interested in doing any of this is because we're trying to live out the gospel, then that's the first leg of the stool. So reconciliation is the reason that we're going to to pursue um, any of this history, why we have to learn this. So that's that's leg number one. And then if we are trying to pursue reconciliation, well, then the next step of the puzzle to mix my metaphors is to uh, is is to then what is it that we're trying to reconcile? So like, what is it then that we're that we're trying to figure out where the dividing wall of hostility comes? And that's where I think history is so important because what history provides for us then is the diagnostic tool that is necessary to understand our present situation. So the history and the present go hand in hand. 
I was thinking about this right before I logged on with you guys. I, I mentioned that I'm, I'm uh, recovering from some kind of uh, bronchitis and just Sunday morning, I ended up in urgent care here in, in, in town. And I was struck again as I was there um, getting my patient intake, the kinds of questions they're asking me. They're asking me about my family history. They're asking about my parents. They're asking me about surgeries that I've had in the past. They asked me about my wisdom teeth, if I had all my wisdom teeth or just two of the wisdom teeth when I told them I had my wisdom teeth out. And I was struck again about this idea that I came in complaining about uh, this cough, that I couldn't stop coughing. But they didn't just like diagnose that one thing. They wanted to like open up. Let's take a look at everything. Um, because if we're going to like figure out this one problem, we have to know what has caused that problem. So we need to take everything into account. And that's why history is so important and part of this, this reconciliation tool, history, understanding what it is about us and our neighbors that have gone askewed. History is going to be that important tool for that. And then that gets us to the third leg, which is, is sociology today. And this is where I think your conversation with, with Dr. Yancey, I think hopefully we'll, we'll dovetail nicely with this. But if then if we do live in a world in which we have um, divisions, we have strife that persists. Um, how are we going to then use that knowledge of historical um, events that have produced this then to develop solutions to the divisions um, that persist in American society today? And that takes us back to our third tool. Why should we try to bridge those divides and break down those dividing walls of hostilities? Because that's what marks us as Christians the people who are able to do what the broader culture says can't be done. Um, I always tell my students that it's no accident that um, it's in, it's in Antioch that uh, we're, 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 we're Jews and Greeks are worshiping together, that they're doing something that is so um, atypical, that is so unusual that the world hadn't seen before that they actually, actually have to come up with a new name for it. They have to call them Christians because they're doing something there that no one else had seen before. And so, I think just even buried in the name Christian is the idea that, man, if you call yourself a Christian, you're signing up for something, a movement that's going to look for divisions that exist in the world and break down those divisions and, and bring unity. And so um, that's why I think history is so important, because without that historical tool, um, even the acknowledgement or the ability to see those divisions escapes us. So... This has gone really fast, but I, I do want to ask one more question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that why this episode pairs really well with Dr. Yancey's episode is, um, you know, we've talked a lot with him about, you know, the tagline to his book, a unifying, his book titles, Beyond Racial Division, a Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. You know, obviously in history, you know, you're dealing with terms that have historical technical meanings. I guess I'd like to get your perspective. I think you've helped our listeners understand the meaning of colorblindness, whether they meant it or not. Like there's some ties back there. I, I guess help help us understand why maybe, you know, colorblindness and anti-racism, like we get so stuck on terms. How can we move forward even if maybe we're uncomfortable with the terms or, you know, I guess I'm just kind of, you know, noticing that that's something that it's a unique, you know, connection between you and Dr. Yancey. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, I think that, that 
terms are terms are easy. Terms are, are labels that we can slap on people, and we do like you know. Um, Psychologists tell us all the time it's how we just make sense of things. It's easy. It's it's it's, it's it saves us mental bandwidth. Um, and so I, one of the difficulties with terms is that then if you associate someone with a particular term that you disagree with, then you can kind of just dismiss that person altogether. I, one of the things I appreciate about about Yancey's work is that he pushes us to to um, maybe explore the terms a little bit more. And understand the people who embrace those terms aren't necessarily um, in and of themselves um, people that you shouldn't give more of a hearing to. That was a bad way of saying it. What I mean to say is this, that um, if you have someone who takes a position of, of anti-racism or if you have someone, if you're an anti-racist who takes a position of colorblind, colorblindness, your first instinct might be just to, to dismiss that person as a, as a hopeless lost cause. And I think what uh, standing in the middle of those two of those two camps says is that is there some common ground that we can find um, between these two camps that would allow us to take someone who says, I understand what you mean when you say colorblind. Have you ever thought about um, what that might mean for someone with this perspective? And perhaps would this be a better way of thinking about colorblindness, understanding what you're trying to get at? Or similarly, uh, looking at someone who is taking an anti-racist position and saying, I understand what you're getting at here. I wonder if what you're doing here might be um, something that be more congruent with someone if we thought about it in this way instead, instead of using this terminology, if we talked about racialization instead of um, racism, would that be something that would give us common ground that we could work through? And so the way that uh, Yancey does uh, such a terrific job, I think, of finding this space between two camps that are seem to be adamantly opposed to each other and said, maybe if we just change the terms of the debate, maybe we can find out that there is more commonality between us than we think. I think that's a good place for Christians to, 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 to operate. I know, I know we're coming to the end of our time here, but I, I really appreciated that, that question and that answer. Um, it was something I was thinking about too. And I guess, I was wondering, I wanted to ask you from a historical perspective, are there are there places where during specifically during the civil rights movement um, where terminology was used well or not well that helped? I mean, we've come so we've come a long way from, you know, you mentioned the there were people who were trying to put forward Dr. King as a communist, you know. We've come along. I don't think there's many. I would. I would hope there's not many people who think that now. I mean, maybe there are. I don't know, but I don't think so. I don't think that's popularly thought. So we've come a long way. Um, what has helped come that way? But maybe what what use of terminology was helpful? What use of terminology may have hindered us as we're continuing to wrestle with this as a as a nation? R Rusty, I just want to compliment you. This is how engaging this episode is. Aaron and I usually have this really good rhythm. We're stumbling over, and he's even adding one more question. So <laughs> let Aaron, I, I like to say Aaron's the Dan Patrick, I'm the Keith Oberman. So sometimes we switch, but anyways, keep going. Nice. Um, Aaron, could you could you hit me one more time with the, 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 yeah, the ending so, of that question? Yeah, so you, you had just talked about how people can – uh, sometimes terminology can basically short circuit a debate is kind of how I heard it. When people, yeah. when those who are espousing, you know, in this case, colorblindness or anti-racism, they don't hear each other. They're hearing their terms and what they're associating with them. And people start throwing around 
words like racist, racist, uh, and things like that very easily. And, um, and that, that really, I, you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think probably isn't helpful to advancing a productive conversation for people who are of goodwill, um, who are, who are people actually want to find solutions. So I'm, I was curious, you know, from a historical lens, the history you've looked at, uh, in the civil rights movement in particular, or maybe it could be somewhere else, but when was a, is there a good example that we could look at and learn from is like, when did civil rights advocates or whoever use terminology well, or maybe is there an example when they didn't use well, what can we learn from the history you've looked at? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think that, I mean, your, your lead into that about, about, uh, Dr. King and how he's understood now as compared to how he would have been understood then, I think is a really instructive one because I, I think that he King was not, King was not well liked even at, at the point that he was assassinated in 68, he, he had a, a, a low favorability, um, among Americans. I mean, he was not, he was not this icon, uh, that we remember him to be today. And I think the instructive lesson in that is that lots of times there is so much heat that gets associated with certain uh, people or even terms that there is a willingness not to even like take into account what those ideas were. So for instance, um, King talked a lot about justice and, um, and even today, I think that this notion of justice or even social justice is one that for a lot of people that has become just such a, a flashpoint word that like, oh, if you hear that, that's how you know you need to run. Um, but I, I think that if we understand truly what justice is, um, that that justice is a, is a relationship with rightly ordered loves to it, that we tend to take a lot more of our own um, – assumptions about ideas and terms and put them into things that perhaps if we can take a breath uh, and take a pause and ask more about what that term means, then perhaps there wouldn't be that, that same kind of like knee jerk, like uh, rejection of certain ideas. Um, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't uh, um, mention our, our, our institution's namesake, John Wesley, but um one of the ideas that that uh, Wesley talked about is as, as Christians pursue holiness. Um, Wesley said there is no holiness aside from social holiness. That 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 the way that you treat other people, uh, social holiness, is what holiness is. Um, and I think, I mean, that that is so um, instructive, and yet also an idea today that if you talk about social anything, um, there is a there is a, a moment in which. Um, the reaction might be to say, oh, that's that's code for socialism or that's code for Marxism or that's cultural Marxism. Um, and just understand that words have bigger meanings and, 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 and longer histories than uh, we often uh, in the moment give them credit for. Uh, maybe we would do well to, to pause and consider, is there something deeper? Um, John Wesley was no, was no communist, but he was a, a, a deep proponent of social holiness, hmm. as am I. You know, they wouldn't have it any other way at Indiana Wesleyan to close. So, uh, Rusty, uh, we probably could have gone two hours. Um, I I love technology, but I wish we had you here in person. So if you come visit Rochester, yeah. let us know. Um, so what we do is we always close every episode with a question, what is Jesus 
have to say of why does history matter to rec racial reconciliation like a good professor um aaron and i are going to answer and you get to clean up whatever mess we leave does that sound good that sounds great <laughs> um you know what i'll go first um so Galatians 3.28, Paul uh, in the church makes this comment about there's no longer slave or free, Gentile or Jew or Greek, we're all one. And, you know, I think when you delve into that verse, it what what Paul is saying is we're all one under Jesus, but he's very comfortable kind of saying this is our background, this is our understanding. And as I listened to this conversation, that verse just became so palatable because I, I think, why does history matter? It matters to my personal history, you know, growing up, um, but it also matters to the history of the people around me. And I, I almost wonder if we had Paul and Jesus here, like if a way to frame that verse is we're comfortable talking about our differences because it unites us in the gospel, but it helps us understand each other. And so I, I think that knowing her own story, being willing to engage that seeing differences, it it allows us to have the humility to, to come to the table and have these difficult conversations. And I, I think as I look at Jesus, Jesus met with Gentiles, he met with Jews, he met with women, he met with men. And, you know, what we see is someone that espoused the theology of the image of God on each individual, taking into complete consideration their individual story. And so, I think that that's kind of what I'm leaving with today. Mm. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, no, I appreciate this conversation and um, thank you so much for being with us in your time today, Rusty. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, no, I, I uh, why does history matter to rec racial reconciliation? I really, I, I think that, um, maybe you got to this a little bit, Peter, but like sitting down with a person, it's important to know it's, if you learn more about someone's story, you're gonna that's gonna inform your conversation on an interpersonal level and hopefully make uh, amongst people of goodwill make a, a have a better conversation towards whatever I mean just towards relationship. Um, I think it's really important to be learning the history on on this matter in particular. And I and I loved how you even said you know how where do I start where do I start <laughs> tracing this back to? You could go way back to the 15th century or you know what whatever. Um, and uh, uh, that I think that's important. It's important to know that um, choices that are made along the way make a difference. Um, events along the way, words along the way. It's not, history isn't just a bunch of just dates on a page. There's there's a real story there that informs um, where we are right now. And, and I do think that that's important to, to know. And I think, um, you know, I think that uh, Jesus wants us to know our, our stories. Um, he knows our stories. And I think um, it's all the more powerful. It shows how much he's, he's doing to, to to, when he changes, uh, he redeems our stories, how powerful that is. So anyways, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you both. I don't think I could have said it better myself with both those takeaways. I, uh, I, I, I appreciated them, them both. I, I think I'll just uh, piggyback a little bit on, on Aaron's uh, response there and say as well that, that um, one of the things that, that history teaches us is that, um, again, nothing is inevitable and that our work to advance the kingdom is going to be dependent upon our uh, decisions we make as we seek to faithfully follow Christ to wherever he's calling us. And sometimes that means uh, 
across divides and uh, and and uh, through walls of, of, of division, oftentimes that's where he's calling us. So um, as we uh, learn from those uh, who have made those decisions in the past, um, let us do likewise and and uh, and follow Christ wherever he's calling us. Wow, that was a really great way to close. Rusty, where's the best place to, uh, that people can find and follow you or contact you? You know, you can't follow me anywhere. Um, I'm not someone to follow, but uh, if anyone is interested, inwest.edu uh, is our campus website. And if you have, have folks that you want to um, come to Indiana Wesleyan and, and get a greeno at our campus uh, coffee shop named after Aaron's wife, I uh, just learned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, we'd love to host you and, and, and would love to have opportunities to, to engage with you here. So uh, ind.edu. WES.edu, endwest.edu is, uh, is our campus website. Well, thank you so much, Rusty. You can find us at uh, whygotwhypodcast.com. Click the, subscribe, uh, click the subscribe button, and uh, you can get this episode and many others in your email inbox each week. Thank you so much for joining us.